Welcome to day three of how to build a godly and manly foxhole. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson of Undaunted Life. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we're going to recap days one and two of this devotional. Uh, We spent some time diving into two very big questions, and the first one was, what makes a godly man? And the second was, what makes a manly man? So on day one, we talked about what makes a godly man, and we talked about the truths that exist outside of yourself. This is the narrative of humanity that doesn't matter if you believe in it or not, it's the narrative that you're living. And the second, we talked about truths displayed publicly, and that really answered the question, what makes a godly man? And then we listed 10 characteristics of a godly man. Then in day two, we looked at what makes a manly man. And we talked about how here at Undaunted Life, we have a definition of what a man is. And that's this. A man is a male that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. We also talked about Adam Brown, the now deceased Navy SEAL team member of SEAL Team 6, and also what Paul did in his second letter to Timothy. So guys, if you have not caught days one and day two, you need to go back and listen to those before you listen to today's lesson. So for today, we bring both of those questions together to form a new question. And that's this. Can you be both godly and manly? So can you be both godly and manly? I guess the quick answer is, well, yes, of course. Of course you can be both of those things at the same time. But that answer requires a bit more digging because you may not believe that because of what the modern church and also what modern culture has taught you. And so to kind of go back a little bit for me, I did not grow up in church personally. So I, I lived in the you know South Central or Southwestern Oklahoma, and it was just kind of one of those things where kind of like I mentioned in the last episode, I grew up in Oklahoma, so I grew up believing in God because that was a cultural thing, right? That, that was essentially whatever it was. I started going to church on my own uh, in junior high school, and I, I basically went because that's where all the pretty girls went. So I'm just going to be honest with you. My buddies are like, hey, you got to come check this out. And so I did. But then as a 10th grader, I accepted Jesus into my heart. And this was on a Sunday night. It was a hellfire and brimstone preacher that came in. And it was, it was an amazing thing. And I was truly moved by it. And I truly accepted Jesus into my heart. But then I started kind of looking around because at this time I'm in 10th grade, right? So I'm still trying to figure out what a man is. Like, how do I become a man? And now I'm going to church and I'm seeing these kinds of men. So, you know, they got their shirts tucked in and their, their pants are pressed and Hey, I'll pray for your brother. And they're patting you on the back. And I was like, Oh, okay. All right. I would have never considered these people to be manly, but I'm like, okay, I guess this is what a godly man is. But all the manly men that I knew in terms of what my paradigm of manliness was at the time as a kid, basically, you know, a 15, 16 year old was not that it was things that existed outside the church. I didn't see those guys inside the church. So I kind of developed this dichotomy in my head of manliness and godliness. Now, obviously, as we're going to really prove with this lesson, that that is not the right mindset to have. But that was the mindset that I had. And I, I would be honest that a lot of guys even today, regardless of their age, feel the same way. They feel like there is a dichotomy between manliness and godliness, and those two things can't be combined. And I think part of the reason is because of there's an over-focus on the Lamb of God inside churches and relatively zero focus on the Lion of Judah. And I don't say that to say that you shouldn't talk about the Lamb of God. Obviously, you should. But that's only part of who Jesus Christ was. That's only part of who he is. He is fully 100% lamb and fully 100% lion. But we don't really talk about that. The lamb is so easy to understand and he's, he's cute and cuddly and we can just, you know, curl him up and put him in our shirt pocket and move on with our day. But the lion of Judah, you know, Jesus coming back you know, pulling a sword out of his mouth with a tattoo on his leg, like, ugh, and his robe dipped in blood. Ah, it's scary, right? It's super scary. That's part of the reason why the church doesn't really talk about that. 
But then also just to kind of take the church off the hook a little bit, culture is telling us that masculinity in and of itself is toxic. You, you've heard this talk before, right? So, and if you're godly, you certainly don't want to be toxic at the same time. But I do want to kind of pull the, this idea out that a lot of people have basically talked about is that just because things are dangerous doesn't mean you should eradicate them. It doesn't mean you should get rid of them because masculinity certainly can be dangerous, but so can weapons. Weapons are dangerous, but that doesn't mean you get rid of them. Medicine is dangerous. That doesn't mean you get rid of it. The same could be said about education or food or businesses, whatever you want to say. What you want to do is not eradicate those things. You want to make sure you put them in the hands of people that are smart enough, trained enough, and good enough to use those things properly. And I would even say to take it one step further, to use it for the glory of God. And so yesterday we talked about Adam Brown. Obviously, I don't think I'm really going out on a limb here to say that that guy was godly and manly in just about every sense of the word. And again, if you don't believe me, just read that book, Fearless. But this was all kind of twirling around in my head and it reminded me of a story of a guy who is also very godly and manly. One of my favorite people from all of scripture, and that's Nehemiah. So the story of Nehemiah, you know, what's described in the book of Nehemiah occurs in the mid 400s BC, so likely between the years 445 and 432 BC, and this occurred in the Persian Empire in the Near East. So I'm going to kind of give you a rundown very quickly of the first three chapters of Nehemiah, and then we're going to spend a lot of time in Nehemiah 4. Because I could talk a lot about Nehemiah. There, there's a lot that could be said about Nehemiah, but this is a highlight of his life that I feel like is the most pertinent for our discussion today. So here's Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah basically inquired as to the state and status of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, at this point, we don't have any evidence that Nehemiah had ever seen Jerusalem, but those were his people. That was technically his homeland. So he was told that the people were not doing well at all and that the walls and gates of the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so Nehemiah, when he learned this, he was incredibly distressed by that news. He immediately began fasting and praying to God. And we're going to talk a lot about that here in a second. And he was asking for mercy and direction in that moment. So he was doing this while being cupbearer to King Artaxerxes at the time. So he was a high ranking official charged with serving the king. That was his job. So the job of the cupbearer was generally to serve wine to the royalty. So they would even go so far as to guard the king's cup right? The, that whatever the juice or, or wine would be put in and they would taste the King's wine and the other royalties wine to ensure that the wine hadn't been poisoned because that was apparently something that happened a lot during that time. So that's Nehemiah one. Then we get into Nehemiah two. So Nehemiah is doing his whole, you know, cupbearer thing, his duties for King Artaxerxes, but the King notices that Nehemiah is looking pretty sad. So he asks, which is kind of weird that the King would even care, but he asks Nehemiah, you know, Hey, what's going on now? This is a bit of a predicament for Nehemiah, and we don't really see this in the scripture, but it's definitely a, pr a predicament because he is truly distraught. Like he, he can't hide his emotions. But in this time period, servants to royalty didn't really share their personal anguish with the people that they were serving, right? Because a lot of this royalty, they, they couldn't even fathom because a lot of them saw themselves as gods. They couldn't even fathom that something could potentially be going wrong so, so as to be in their presence wouldn't cause these people to be super excited. It could even cost them their lives if they showed this amount of personal anguish. So he literally couldn't help looking distraught because he was so convicted by what had happened and by the kind of the state of what was going on in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah was apparently so distraught that he didn't care about the risk 
and he told King Artaxerxes that he was sad because Jerusalem and its people were in shambles. Okay. So King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah what he wanted to do about it. And in that moment, Nehemiah prayed, and then he asked the king to allow him to go back to his homeland, to the, to the land of his forefathers, and rebuild the city walls. And somewhat miraculously, King Artaxerxes agreed to this. Yeah, sure, you can have a leave of absence from your very, very important job to go do something that you want to do personally, right? So then Nehemiah kept it going. He asked the king for letters to be written that would allow him safe passage to his final destination and for access to wood from the king's personal forest to aid in the rebuilding project. So, so now you got to think he's pushing, right? So he really wants to do this thing, but he is pushing the king. And even more miraculously, King Artaxerxes agreed to all of that as well. So Nehemiah made his way to Jerusalem. He had safe passage there. And when he got there, he did something really, really interesting. He didn't immediately tell anyone what his intentions were. He kind of kept it low key. He didn't really tell anybody. He spent several days inspecting the walls and kind of surveying the damage and kind of getting the lay of the land a little bit. Then after he had done that, he went to the people of Jerusalem to implore them to rebuild the wall. So he kind of put on a salesman hat. And for the most part, the people were behind him. And that was with the exception listed here in scripture uh, for people like Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who really mocked him and taunted Nehemiah for his goal. And, you know, just those types of people that no matter what you want to do, they want to be the people to bring you back down. Then we go into Nehemiah 3. So in Nehemiah 3, this chapter goes into pretty good detail, actually, about how and who rebuilt which parts of the city walls and the gates. And so it's kind of interesting if you're kind of like a maybe a numbers person or maybe even just like a... I don't know how you would say it, but someone who's like really into the process of something like you're actually seeing these people listed and it's like, no, no, this family like took care of that part and this family took care of this other part over here. So some people kind of skip over Nehemiah 3, but I found it to be pretty interesting. But then we get to Nehemiah 4. And this is where we really, really start to see opposition to the project. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter to you here. This is Nehemiah 4 verses 1 through 23. Now, when Samballot heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, 
your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then starting in verse 15, we see the work resuming. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, so how is Nehemiah both godly and manly? And we're going to look at Nehemiah through the prism, I guess, or the filter of the first two days of this devotional. So day one, we talked about what makes a godly man, and we listed 10 characteristics. I'm going to look at a few of them right now in terms of what Nehemiah was. So one of the things we looked at was that a godly man is repentant. That is one of the things that we said on day one, right? And so in Nehemiah 1 verses 4 through 11, we see him kind of go through this because he immediately begins to confess the sins of himself and his people. He's not just talking about what he's doing or what he's going through and all that. He's, he's talking about his entire people. This was his first thought to do whenever he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, was to repent. That's what a godly man does. The second thing that we, we talked about, or one of the other things we talked about on day one, is that a godly man does not rely on his own strength alone. So let's look at Nehemiah 2, 4. So Nehemiah is about to ask the king for permission and help, right? This is a, a dire situation potentially. But before he does it, the scripture tells us, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So he could have literally went in there and been like, hey man, I've been serving you for a long time. I've been drinking your potentially poisoned juice. Like, let, let's talk about this. Let me do this. Come on, I deserve it. I need a vacation. That's not what he did. He didn't just lean on the fact that he had been a good cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He leaned on the God of heaven, the God of all creation, the, the God who essentially allowed someone like King Artaxerxes to have power, right? They, they only had power because God allowed the free will to even get him in that position. But he doesn't rely on his own strength. He says, God, I need you here. Hook me up. And another thing that we see, a godly man loves God and his neighbor. So we see Nehemiah's love for God throughout the book of Nehemiah, and certainly the, the love for his neighbor. But I specifically want to look at Nehemiah 2, verses 17 and 18. I'll go ahead and read it here. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So in this situation, Nehemiah was imploring these people, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem, to, to get up and help themselves. We kind of live in a culture now where it's okay to be a victim and you want, you want as much victim status as possible so people will look on you with pity and then help you. No, no, no. Nehemiah went to these people that had been basically doing that 
They'd been navel gazing and, you know, oh man, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And look at the walls and oh, we're in such big trouble and we're in dire straits. Nehemiah came in and said, no, we're going to fix this. Like he loved his neighbor so much that he didn't just solve the problem for the neighbor. He implored them to solve it themselves. Like, hey, let's all get together. Let's, let's use our own strength and also rely on the strength of God to make this project happen. An awesome, awesome thing. But then when we looked at day two of this devotional, when we talked about what makes a manly man, we think a manly man is spiritually, mentally, and physically resilient. So let's look at the spiritual resilience of someone like Nehemiah. After Nehemiah told the Jews what he planned to do in Jerusalem, we see this happen. So this was in Nehemiah 2, verses 19 and 20. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So you want to talk about spiritual resilience. At this point, Nehemiah is basically telling these people, Look, I don't care about what you're saying. Like, like you guys are are just kind of going out there trying to destroy what we're trying to do, but we're not just doing this for ourselves. We're relying on God's strength and provision, and we're going to make this thing happen. And there's essentially nothing that you can do about it. And then we get into the mental resilience of someone like Nehemiah. So at the beginning of Nehemiah 4, Sanballat and his cronies were jeering at the Jews and making fun of them and their project and all that kind of stuff. And this is how Nehemiah responds. This is great. Nehemiah 4 verses 4 through 6. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So again, similar to the first situation, they're getting jeered at, they're getting messed with. And Nehemiah's like, look, I don't have time for you jokers. But God, I want you to remember what's happening here. I want you to see what's happening here, but we're going to get back to work. But I just want you to think about the times in your life, whether you experienced bullying directly or something like that, when, when people were telling you what you were doing was dumb or what you're doing was silly, or you really shouldn't waste your time with that. That's got a lot of impact on you mentally. It really kind of wears you down and kind of, you know, it's an anchor to you and it just, it won't let you kind of break free and go and do the things that you want to do. It's just holding you back. I know for me at different points in my life, I've had to deal with that to where it's like, man, I'm getting a lot of resistance here from people that I feel like should be on my team. They're just not on my team. What's the deal? It requires a lot of mental resilience to just ignore those people and say, I'm not going to listen to that. We got work to do. And then the last thing here is physical resilience. Nehemiah was very physically resilient. So a couple of different scriptures we'll be going through here. Nehemiah 4, we'll look at 16 and 17, and then we'll go into verses 21 through 23. So here is Nehemiah 4, 16, 17. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Now let's look at Nehemiah 4, 21 through 23. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So in this situation, these guys are ready. 
These guys are ready for war. And I want to just be honest with, with you about something. I feel like kind of the war mentality, right? It's kind of the warfare words and that kind of thing. It's overused, especially in Christian men's circles, especially from people that have never been to war. Like me personally, I've never been to war. So, but these people were ready for it because let's just be honest. You had to be physically resilient. If you're going to be building a wall, that's hard work. I mean, these guys are having to move these stones are having to move this wood. They're having to do a lot of different things. The ability to be able to come back day after day and work on this, you had to be physically resilient, but also they were ready to fight. I love how he talks about how you've got, you know, your, your working tool in one hand and your defensive and offensive tool in the other, your, your tool of warfare in the other, like we're going to keep this project going forward, but we're going to be ready just in case somebody comes at us. There, there's a physical resilience there that is hard for many of us to understand because again, most of us live these kind of cushy lives in the, in these Western countries. you may live the suburban life where you're not worried about the people in the next town over the hill coming over the hill and trying to take all your stuff and all your people, right? You're not worried about that. You're not worried about them taking your wife or your children and your dog. Like you're, you're not worried about that. We don't have to worry about that. But Nehemiah and his men, they had to worry about that. And so they had to prepare themselves to do what they needed to do in case things went poorly. So Nehemiah was a man for so many reasons, but probably the biggest reason for me is he was so spiritually, mentally, and physically resilient. So can you be godly and manly? Yes, absolutely. Adam Brown is a great example of that. And certainly Nehemiah is a great example of that as well. But guys, before you go on to the next thing, here are a few questions to ask yourself. Number one, Am I a good example of someone that is both godly and manly? And this is kind of the question where the rubber meets the road, guys. Like, are you godly and manly? Are you doing that at the same time? Make sure you answer that question honestly. Then we have the second question here. Do I have a lot of men in my life that are both godly and manly? Again, this is going to be a through point for this entire devotional. Are you surrounded by men that are cultivating this godliness and manliness on a daily basis? And then the last question here, can a man excel just being one or the other or neither? So basically, can a man excel just being godly? Can they excel just being manly? Can a man excel if they're not godly or manly? That's a very important question for you to ask yourself. All right, guys, for more content like this, check out the rest of our podcast episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review and a five-star rating and check out our website, www.undaunted.life. Also, if you've already gotten a ton of value out of this devotional and would like to download the entire series for your personal future use, please go to www.undaunted.life backslash donate backslash foxhole. That link will be in the description in the notes here, www.undaunted.life backslash donate backslash foxhole. Give us a donation, commensurate with the amount of value you think you've gotten so far, and download the episodes for your use. Make sure you come back tomorrow for day four, where we discuss whether or not Jesus was a manly man. Until then, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.